Hi, and welcome to this edition of the Clavel Report, Law, Policy, and Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Clavel, and today we're going to talk about the rising international tensions between the United States, Russia, China, and Iran. Is this World War III or Cold War II? 2020 has brought a lot of changes in our world. Uh, right before our eyes, we see history being made. We see the domestic carnage from COVID-19. We see the destruction of our economy as we knew it. But we also saw the rising tensions between old foes and also new ones. We also saw the challenge to the United States supremacy of being the lone superpower in the world since after the Cold War between the former Soviet Union and the United States. 2021, I believe, is one of the most important years in our world history as it relates to the balancing of international powers. Will we continue to be the lone superpower or will we have to share this power moving forward? If you look at the issues that we've had with Russia in meddling in our elections in 2016 and also in 2020, the cybersecurity attacks also by China and the tensions rising in the South China Sea. And finally, with Iran wanting to develop and continue to develop nuclear weapons and the issues that we have and the tensions in the Middle East, all causes us to pause and think about where are we headed now? But before we do so, I want us to take a look at President Biden's response in his message, courtesy of the White House YouTube channel by Henderson Times. Take a look at this clip. Are our greatest asset. And leading with diplomacy means standing shoulder to shoulder with our allies and key partners once again. By leading with diplomacy, we must also mean engaging our adversaries and our competitors diplomatically, where it's in our interest and advance the security of the American people. That's why yesterday, the United States and Russia agreed to extend the New START Treaty for five years to preserve the only remaining treaty between our countries safeguarding nuclear stability. At the same time, I made it clear to President Putin in a manner very different from my predecessor that the days of the United States rolling over in the face of Russia's aggressive actions, interfering with our elections, cyber attacks, poisoning its citizens are over. We will not hesitate to raise the cost on Russia and defend our vital interest and our people. And we will be more effective in dealing with Russia when we work in coalition and coordination with other like-minded partners. The politically motivated jailing of Alexei Navalny and the Russian efforts to suppress freedom of expression and peaceful assembly are a matter of deep concern to us and the international community. Mr. Navalny, like all Russian citizens, is entitled to his rights under the Russian Constitution. He's been targeted, targeted for exposing corruption. He should be released immediately and without condition. We'll also take on directly the challenges posed by our prosperity, security, and democratic values by our most serious competitor. 
China will confront China's economic abuses, counter its aggressive, coercive action to push back on China's attack on human rights, intellectual property, and global governance. But we are ready to work with Beijing when it's in America's interest to do so. We will compete from a position of strength by building back better at home, working with our allies and partners, renewing our, renewing our, our role in international institutions, and reclaiming our credibility and moral authority, much of which has been lost. That's why we move quickly to begin restoring American engagement internationally and earn back our leadership position to catalyze global action on shared challenges. On day one, I signed the paperwork to rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement. We're taking steps led by the example of integrating climate objectives across all As we can see, the issues are major. The issues that we have as the United States and the emerging uh, powers in the world and old foes are ever present. President Biden addressed several issues. Here we're going to, I'm going to address those, but also one more. I want us to first take a look at China. China itself is a nation that has, I believe, the growth of the nation from the way it governed itself through isolationism uh, to now being a major industrial and now military and technology-driven nation is simply amazing. In the last, I would say, 50 years, the evolution of China from what it was to what it is now is simply astonishing. I think it's a case study that should be a study for years to come. And I don't think it's something that can be duplicated in current times, um, given China's history and also their population. But one of the issues with China now is that they are imposing their will upon nations in the South China Sea and influencing the world the way that the United States influenced the world in its heyday. What do I mean by that? China has first influenced the world by providing monetary loans to various countries, a lot of developing countries, to be able to build infrastructure and other various things. But under these loans and these funds that they provided, they've also provided contracts of 99-year use of land, various ports, resources of these countries. Now, contractually, these independent countries entered into these contracts on their own. However, so there's not an issue with the contract itself, but the stipulations in the contracts and the influence that China will have in these countries for the next century. That's something that raises an eyebrow and also question marks, not just to the United States and its allies, but also to the world. Militarily, China is currently building its Navy, building its Air Force, and its ground troops. Now, any country that wants to become strong, you do it through economics and you do it through military. And that's exactly what China is doing. But in order to do so, you have to also you have to 
be strong enough to challenge the superpower of the day. In the South China Sea, China has found themselves breaking international law, flying into restricted air, uh, air zones uh, of current nations that they should not be doing so. They're doing this primarily unchecked by anyone, more specifically the United States, building man-made islands in the South China Sea, which simply act as airports and launching pads for the military planes. Keep in mind, in the South China Sea, you have the Asian countries, of course, Japan, which is a U.S. ally. You have South Korea, which is a U.S. ally. You have Taiwan. You have the nation of Guam. And you also have Australia. All of these are U.S. allies. But the allies of China, of course, is North Korea. If we start to take a look at what China is doing, building these man-made islands, encroaching up upon uh, sovereign land and airspace provided by international agreement and law to these nations, it speaks to nothing else but one thing, and that China is ready to challenge the United States and its influence and supremacy in that part of the world. In addition to that, we take a look at Taiwan. Taiwan itself is a nation allied to the United States. But China, of course, after colonialism, is wanting to regain control of nations that were taken from them and islands and lands taken from them and highly influenced through European colonialism. We saw this with the giving back of Hong Kong to Beijing, to China by the British. And we now see that the human rights and the free, the freedoms that the people of Hong Kong experienced for years, centuries, under um, British rule are being overridden by the new ideology and military force of China. President Xi, China is holding on to his vision and they will rise and fall under his leadership and vision for a strong China. But lastly, I want to take a look at the human rights parts of China, the encroachment that we see. China itself has what they're calling a minority Muslim population of several million people on the borders of Mongolia. And these individuals have been, as the world is calling it, subject to genocide. They've been placed in what's called re-education camps. They've been under heavy monitoring, electronic monitoring, um, and their culture has been started to become erased from history as we see it. A lot of this we see took place in colonialism. If you look at European colonialism across the world, which I think was the major, single major force in, in changing and reshaping our world before the World War I, and of course, World War II. But we saw these same acts take place during European colonialism. But now the same countries that were the perpetrators of this upon native peoples of various countries, except for mainland China, is now saying that this is not good. And it wasn't good when they did it, and it's not good now. Let's make that very clear. So where do we stand? 
As a matter of fact, just recently at the United Nations, our UN ambassador, Thomas Greenfield, stated that the racism and also the genocide that's taking place in China is unacceptable. Immediately, the UN ambassador uh, for China hit back at the United States and said that you cannot get on your high horse and tell us what to do when you have problems with racism with black people. And George Floyd was brought up as well. So immediately there was a back and forth, but who was right? Can we point our fingers at China and say that you are bad, what you're doing in the United States and other countries are doing the same thing to their quote unquote minority groups. I believe it's an awakening for all of us, but more specifically as it relates to the tensions in America and across international law, the international community. I believe China is the biggest threat in that part of the world and economically, militarily to the United States as being the lone superpower of the world. But now I want to discuss Russia. Russia, the bear, the former Soviet Union, led by none other than Vladimir Putin. Now, this is an old foe. This is a country that has flexed their muscles under Lenin, under Stalin, under other czars, and caused havoc across Europe and the rest of the world. And we see the same thing happening today as it relates to Russia and the United States. Very recently, and you saw in the clip where President Biden advised that we will not sit silently and allow Russia to do what it did, and that they will pay a price for what they did in cybersecurity attacks against the United States. Now, let's take a look at what they did. It was discovered through an investigation that Russia was interfering in free and fair elections here in the United States, favoring Donald Trump to win the election. Now, we we know that it wasn't that they liked Donald Trump better than they liked Hillary Clinton at the time, but they believed that the policies of the Clinton administration would be more deadly and are detrimental to Russian interests at that time. So they supported a candidate that they felt that they could work with. Uh, a candidate who had secured financial backing for various business ventures. A candidate who actually had, I believe, business holdings in that country and other countries affiliated with Russia. So from a political standpoint, they supported the candidate that best supported their interests. But how did they do it? Did they do it through financial giving as we traditionally do in, in America, you give to the campaign or the candidate that supports your interest? No. What did they do? They use cyber attacks. They use cyber influencing in order to turn the election. Now, did they send cyber bombs into our various agencies and the like? Not in 2016, not in 2015, but we're going to get to that in just a moment. What happened in 2019 and 2020. But what they did do is that they used social media. 
They simply use social media to influence the election from a standpoint to where they created what's called these bots. And these bots, these digital bots, uh, were creating messages saying that, oh, you know, Black Lives Matter protest is going to be downtown here at this time. And actually, it was somebody from a province in the former Soviet Union that was sending these bots. And there was no organized effort on the American end. They also would send messages stoking racial tensions and the like in America, causing divisions across the board. Fake messages, but people were playing into it, which also brings up another issue as it relates to truth and social media. Of course, we saw this play out recently with the hearings on Capitol Hill between the creator of Facebook, of Twitter, and also Google, and how they could utilize more technology in order to determine what is truth and what is not. But is there a infringement upon freedom of speech when you when you do that? Now, there's plenty of debate I, that's out there, and debate can be had. But the issue becomes, is it good for our country? Is it good for society in order to be able to spread lies intentionally? And I think all of us would agree the answer is no. As the Supreme Court has stated, you can't get a fire in a crowded theater when there is no fire, especially when the theater is dark. You cause havoc, you cause disruption, and you can even cause death. And we see that that's exactly what Russia has done. But not just the election, but Russia itself has also caused and raised international tensions as it relates to how they deal with individuals that come against Russia, Vladimir Putin, and the policies of Russia. We see the poisonings and the assassinations that take place when you speak up against this regime. As a matter of fact, there have been several individuals in recent time who have been poisoned with various toxic materials that you can only get uh, from various government labs because it's just that dangerous for society to have. Individuals who are poisoned with plutonium and other deadly substances. This is something that the world itself raises an eyebrow. This is something that the United States is troubled about and its allies. And it's a trend that we see that if left unchecked, can grow like wild, like a wildfire. But not only through cyber attacks, meddling in our election, and the poisoning of dissidents and individuals who speak up against Russia, and the treatment of their own people, but we also see the alliance and the support that they have with Iran. Iran, we know, is a nation that has been at the center of the Middle East and conflicts for years. We're not speaking decades, speaking of hundreds of years. We know that Iran is a country that has carried out terrorist attacks, not just upon the U.S., but also internationally, and supported terrorism across the world. Just the bombing of a plane in which killed many Americans um, not too long ago, and the kidnapping of various individuals, and the hijacking of, their, of, of planes as well. 
These are all actions that have raised eyebrows and caused the United States and the world to pause to determine what is the solution to this issue. Well, we know that the Obama administration entered into a deal uh, agreement with Iran to allow monies that they had in the international community to flow back to their country for development purposes if they agreed not to enrich Iranium for, I mean, uranium for a nuclear bomb, a nuclear weapon in itself. We know that President Trump, former President Trump, pulled out of that agreement and it infuriated not only those in the United States that worked hard on that agreement, the allies in the Middle East and in Europe uh, who are, if a nuclear bomb is developed, that would receive the initial brunt of that devastation, but also infuriated Iran, who thought that they entered into good faith, a deal, an agreement in order not to enrich it so that they could develop their country. Well, they also issued a statement regarding retribution for that. And now the challenge with the United States is how do we now contain once again an Iran that is willing, that is able, and that can cause, again, destruction and havoc in that part of the world. And one of the greatest supporters is not just Vladimir Putin, but also China. So now we see China, we see Russia, we see Iran, that all are working together and independently for their own strength and influence, not only in their regions, but also in the world. At the center of this is the United States as the lone superpower of the world, as the lone major military superpower of the world. Again, China is developing. Russia has nuclear weapons as well. But America is still the leader in that area. But for how long? How vulnerable are our agencies? How vulnerable is the United States? Well, let's look at two areas. First, let's look at what happened on January 6th, the insurrection a time that we live and go down in infamy in the United States as when our own citizens had distrust in our way of life and our government, created primarily by its former leader, former President Trump, which caused everyday Americans, everyday people to leave their homes, their jobs. Some were CEOs, some were presidents of companies, some were uh, high-ranking officials, some were uh, on their own business, were successful in that. Some were unemployed. Some were had criminal records. Some were also law enforcement officials. They galvanized upon the United States Capitol and went in in a rage, a violent rage to inflict fear, pain, and death because a police officer did lose his life. Others could have very easily in order to stop a democratic process that existed since the Constitution itself, the certifying of votes for the people 
in order to elect the president of their choice. <laughs> I thought I never would have saw the day that this would have happened, but it did. We all saw it, not just the United States, but the world saw it. Now, some of my colleagues who are from other countries would say that it was so shocking because we're used to seeing this in developing countries. We're used to seeing coups take over from this uh, military leader or this group or that group. It happens all the time. It's a way of life in many other countries. But they said, not in the United States. How did this happen? It happened because belief is power. When you believe something, even if it's a lie, you will react upon it. And when it comes to your eternal destination or what you believe should be something that belongs to you and is being taken away from you, no matter if it's false or not, we see that people across during time will even give their lives, sacrifice their lives for this. And that's exactly what we saw on January 6th. That's exactly what we see happening across the world, where others are saying that the country is not working for us. We want to take our country back. The second issue I want to discuss as it relates to whether our country is strong enough to resist these tensions across the world from these, primarily these three actors, is the vulnerability of our intelligence and military communities. We know that right before the end of former President Trump's presidency, we know that our major intelligence agencies were cyberly attacked through cyber. Our, the cybersecurity of those agencies failed. Now, was it an inside job? We don't know. The investigation is not done yet. We have no idea. But we do know that all of our intelligence and military agencies, computers were hacked. This is very disconcerting um, to a lot of people and should be, not just in the United States, but across the world. Because if the United States, the most powerful country in the world, intelligence and military computers can be hacked. If our information, which we guard, under lock and key, can be attacked, can be accessed, how much more for other smaller countries and less secure around the world. My friend, the United States of America is currently the greatest experiment of freedoms that we have from a governmental standpoint. Currently, it's the best system in the world because it works. Democracy is truly the most tenuous form of government because you have many factions that are jockeying for their position, their concerns to be heard. But not only is it the most tenuous form, but it's also the most important form that should be protected at all costs. There is nothing wrong with being proud of your country. There's nothing wrong with being proud of your heritage, your people. 
and also recognizing not just the good, but also the bad of every country. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be greater than you are. The issues that we contend with today is how do we go about in doing that? We know that we have great nations that have been destroyed, not just from the outside, but from within. For me, I believe that the United States is just like any other great empire. It can definitely rise and it can surely fall. It can rise and fall from a belief of our nation, people. If we stop believing in American exceptionalism and stop believing that America is truly a nation for all, then it can truly fail from within. If we're divided upon our ideology of what America really should be, then I'm not sure if we can stand. But in addition to that, we should not, and we should not close a blind eye to these tensions across the world. We've seen this before, World War I, World War II, and the Cold War were great examples of it. It's in history. The question is, will we learn from history or will we, are we destined to repeat the mistakes of it? Thank you for joining us for this segment of the Clavier Report Law, Policy, and Politics as we examine the rising international tensions in our world. Will it be World War III or will it be Cold War II? We'll find out on another segment of the Clavier Report. Thank you and be well.